Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the wonderful world of neurodiversity affirming parenting and the lived experiences that come with being in a neurodiverse world. So today I want to warmly welcome our very special guest to talk about all things inclusion. So our guest is Dr. David Palmer. He is a husband, a father, and a neurodivergent adult with an EdD or a doctoral degree in education specializing in special education. So he has decades of experience as a teacher and as an administrator. Now he's a professional and passionate advocate for neurodivergent students and their families. He is the founder and director of Inclusion Matters Education Services. So you may already be following him or his wife's work on social media at I-M-E-S-D-O-C and Inclusion Matter S-E-D or Inclusion Matters Ed. And their mission statement I love on his website is at I-M-E-S, we are on mission to empower parents as advocates for their neurodivergent students. We believe that every student deserves the opportunity to learn and thrive, and we are determined to provide the necessary services and support to make that a reality. So why was he invited on our podcast today? This is because he is also an ADHD adult, a husband and father of six children, five of whom who are adopted and neurodivergent. So David's commitment to inclusion is deeply rooted in his personal life. He loves to share his journey, insights, and dedication to empowering neurodivergent students to thrive in school and life. So please welcome to the show, David, Dr. David. All right. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's exciting. Glad to be here. You're so welcome and congratulations on having your Instagram account for over a year now. It's it's funny because I'm seeing that as like a growing trend of like, I don't feel alone and it like we're, we're seasoned kind of advocates in this sphere, but please tell mm-hmm. me how do you feel going in a year in, how do you feel about neurodiversity and advocacy today? I feel equally if not more passionate about it because in my work i've seen such a need for supporting parents and their neurodivergent children and instagram seemed like a good way to make those connections we live in a community that's relatively small so to be able to have a bigger audience and then connect with other people like you who are passionate also about championing the cause of neurodiversity, helping to educate others what it is, affirming those who are neurodivergent, being able to direct them to different resources and supports is so important to us. And so I'm still kind of new to it. I'm kind of in that generation where, yeah, I grew up with Atari and Nintendo, but now I look at my own children and and, uh, even the youngest one in middle school now, and they can run circles around me with the social media and all the computer stuff. But it's a it's been great, you know, to be able to find you and others on that platform. And we really want it to be a place, first and foremost, where we can get out uh, not just what we do, but more importantly, some good information and resources, and then also be able to promote other like-minded organizations to make sure that parents are able to get what they need as they're empowering their children to, to learn and thrive. 
No, thank you so much. And selfishly, I think it's so important for people of, especially your age group, because my sister is a part of your age group where, you know, there was an 80s scare of ADHD where a lot of kids went, I'm diagnosed and parents thought they were doing the best thing by not getting that label put on their kids or not doing mm -hmm. medication or not getting accommodations. And so we have this, you know, it looks online like a boom of, oh, everybody's talking about ADHD and neurodiversity or, oh, everybody's getting late diagnosed. But can you speak on kind of how, you know, my thing is like, I, I know a lot of people are on the trend of gentle parenting and positive parenting, but I like neurodiversity and affirming parenting because it's kind of, you get to talk about both the good and the bad. So mm -hmm. how do you feel about your experience as being openly an ADHD adult? You're right. When I was in school back in the early 80s, elementary school, I can remember hearing about the kids that went to the resource room, but there was such a divide. And then I remember it was mostly students who had very severe um, intellectual disabilities or they were needing wheelchairs and that that really kind of just it was a different world and then as i was teaching high school from the mid 90s um, up until recently and noticing that so many students even in high school there was something that was making their learning difficult and most of the time the conversation was more student focused in the sense of they're just lazy or they they just they didn't ha must not have had good you know teachers in the past or we say and we should never say this oh they're not getting any kind of support at home you know, if they were parented better, if they were given more rules, if 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 parents were more strict with them, you know, and, and all of these things that I unfortunately have to apologize on the air that I had been caught up into at one time and then had to step back, especially after adopting our own children and seeing, whoa, there's a much bigger picture there. Mm. And so I think that even though we see, I think part of it is that when you go on Instagram, for example, on my account, their the algorithm knows right so sometimes i sit there and i go oh there's no reason for us even to do imes because there's so many people out there doing it but that's what the algorithm is telling us but in my experience what i'm seeing is that there are still teachers and there are still parents who really do not understand much about neurodiversity and so even though my algorithm is telling me that you know everybody and their brother and their sister is now doing stuff it's really relatively small and if you think about it just in terms of idea there's seven over seven million kids that have been identified who have been identified mm -hmm. um and so at least you have seven million families or so that need support and assistance and like you said there's that whole unrecognized group of students that are still kind of out there not getting the attention and the care they need and so that's what really fuels me is knowing that there's enough room for all of us and we need more. We need more special education teachers. We need more therapists. We need more advocates. We need more parents that are coming alongside and building communities because 
uh, we're, we're nowhere near where we should be. And me, in my thinking, ideally where we should be is, is that neurodiversity parenting and teaching should be the norm. Yes. So it's not like too, everything that you're saying, I hear diversity because I get it. There's a lot of people that are advocates are saying like, oh, well, maybe we should have like an ADHD teacher and an autism teacher and a dyslexia teacher. And for me, I'm like, that's not inclusive. You're forgetting that we are all human, that we can share and we overlap. We all have a spiky profile and some of us are identified. Some of us, us are unidentified. Some people want to be identified, other people don't, and that's okay. And I think that's what really drew me to inclusion. Yes, and you know, being identified as ADHD as an adult, I would not have probably fit the 80s profile of what we would typically think of ADH children, which we typically want to think that they're the kids that are jumping off the desks and you know banging on things and i was the opposite i was i was a very quiet reserved uh had a lot of struggles even just childhood trauma of being bullied and teased constantly because of the way i looked or because i did because i wanted to do good in school and so really what got me to understanding adhd for myself was through the road of understanding more about rejection sensitive dysphoria which is this whole set of ideas in my mind that i need to be accepted to be valued and so i will do anything to have people like me and never think badly about me and so that plus having to work even three times as hard in school to be able to focus at home. And then just looking at patterns as I was growing up, I was thinking, wow, it was there the whole time and it makes sense. And now knowing about it and even being diagnosed with ADHD, it never, that, that day was not some kind of magical day where it's like, ding, something amazing happened. Yeah. All I was told was, <laughs> what I already was, you know what I mean? But I will tell you that knowing it was very helpful for me because it gave me the sense of, okay, now that I can understand what's going on, I can have some more empathy towards myself and others. And now I can put things in place in my life just, just to help me a little bit more, let those strengths that I always had shine through. Yes, and I have to agree because I didn't have any clue about what dyslexia was or anything that would entail, especially as an adult, until we started seeing these signs and were investigating for my own daughter. And now it's hard for me to explain in words to people, but I can tell when it's not necessarily that I'm going to mask, but I know if I could hold my natural impulses or my innate urge to kind of use that dyslexic thinking and I step back and I have all these which I mean a lot of people call imposter syndrome or perfectionism and even that rejection of trusting myself mm -hmm. and it does change once you can put a word to it or a label to it and so I try to explain to people like, what is dyslexic thinking for me? And I know it's not going to be the same for everybody or even a dyslexic person, 
But the feeling that I have of when I can trust myself and I don't second guess myself and I see myself become more productive or efficient, Mm -hmm. like on social media, like a lot of people ask me, like, how do you make this content? I'm like, I can't explain like everything. (laughs) I'm sorry. I wish Mm -hmm. I could. But it's something driving me to have this creativity that I wish I had in school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you think about that, how we're grappling with that as adults, but imagine the pressure of our children and all the other students who are in school and there's such, doesn't matter from kindergarten to 12th grade and even into college, there's so much pressure to try to fit in. And so the amount of effort that has to be put in every day so that in their minds they're thinking, so the other kids don't think there's something wrong with me or that I'm weird or that I can't read or any of those things uh, puts just tremendous strain, I think, on our children. And so the more neuroaffirming we are, we're taking that weight off of them. We're saying, look, it's okay, because this is how your brain works. And, and, you know, it's not, it's not the individual who needs to change. It's the societal and cultural norms that need to change about neurodiversity. And, it's just taking a long time for us to get there. I mean, and it's true racially, it's true with so many other things. And so it's so important to us at Inclusion Matters Education Services to really educate people and start changing mindsets. So our goal isn't, what do we need to fix a deficit? It's what do we need to do to support the strengths of a child and then help them find that lane where they can be them and they don't have to try to fit into some kind of other mold. And when I've seen that happen in my own home and I've seen that happen in classrooms, that weight goes off. The anxiety begins to subside and kids are happy being kids. Yes, and I wanna talk to you about that because I have a working theory that I think it's easier for me to understand inclusion because I have a mother that is ADHD gifted, I suspect giftedness um, and dyslexic. And my sister, she's officially diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, giftedness. And for me, it's hard for me to unpack because I've never been diagnosed with ADHD. And obviously in women, it's hard to get that diagnosis. But when I hang out with my family, we're not perfect. We don't, you know, it's not like, oh, we sync up and we all understand each other. We still have conflict. But when we understand how each person operates, we know how to complement each other well. And we don't shame or blame if somebody goes off topic or if somebody interrupts. We accept it and we don't judge something we don't understand. So I'm wondering, is that a strength that you use in your own family to help people understand how inclusion impossible is it is possible it's possible it's always going to be difficult because there is that humanness about us of our own insecurities that we often want to compensate especially with kids i see this often they want to compensate by negatively projecting things onto other kids right and and i sit back and i look and i go you have really no right to say that because you're struggling with something as well but i get it and that happens in our own family where it's like wait a minute no 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 you can't say that because 
you know, we're all in this together. We're all working through all of these things together. And yet at the same time, you can see that that in itself, when it comes out of our kids is a, is an acknowledgement that I don't feel comfortable with myself. And so really a lot of it is not just correcting what we might identify as bad behavior, but it's also helping our kids when they respond that way, look at what's going on in their heart so that we can support them and we can help them as well. So it's, it's really, it's really tricky to be neuro affirming because we want to, we want, you know what I mean? We want to tend to go back to just focusing on the behaviors, you know, sit down. Why can't you just be quiet? Why can't you just get your work done? Why do you always have to move around? Why, why do I have to repeat myself 10 times to you? You know, we think that way because that's kind of the general norm, but it's wrong. It takes time. And like you mentioned, things like positive parenting or gentle parenting. I've had folks come up to me personally and say, no, don't talk like that because all you're going to do is you're going to raise entitled brats. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have no idea what you're saying and what harm you're doing because your child is really crying out for help and, well, and they're and doing it through these behaviors, right? Can I tell, I, I really yeah. want to reach out and tell everybody, like, look at the people you considered spoiled and a child today. What did they get? Mm -hmm. What kind of parenting did they receive? Mm -hmm. Because they didn't get gentle parenting. Mm -hmm. They didn't get neurodiversity understanding at home. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when you talked about your algorithm, I'm jealous. I want to trade with you because I see the opposite and I know Social media is an echo chamber for some, and sometimes that's good. But my problem is I it's the opposite for me because I see so many accounts that don't get it, mm. and they're pushing back. And mm -hmm. I understand that frustration, but I, like you were talking about, yeah, it's easy to go back to behavior. And I think a lot of people that suffer with depression and anxiety understand that because our own brain does that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we know firsthand how unproductive it is. And I mean, I could be my own worst bully myself. I don't need other people to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm with you. And that's what one thing I try to tell people about neuroaffirming parenting is it starts with me. It starts with myself first, because if mm -hmm. I can affirm myself, I know how to affirm other people. Right. Absolutely. And that's interesting you say that because even in a classroom situation, think about classroom management. I had to take lots of classroom management. I've been under leadership in schools that try to teach you how to be um, a good manager of class. And what's so interesting about it is there's still that sense in education where teachers don't smile until Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. And so you gotta be stern, you've gotta set the rules, you've gotta set the boundaries and you've gotta correct those boundaries, even if that means detentions and referrals because you have to set the tone. And when I started getting more and more into neurodivergence, when I, and then my big interest is the tie-in between neurodivergence and trauma yeah. And that's a big thing for me right now and, and starting to do a lot of study in that. And as I started learning more about things like Dr. Porges and the polyvagal theory and then Dr. Mona Delahook, who brings it into 
child psychology. I mean, it, it's and we're thinking again, about her because she's still having her own health battles, and she's still having her own struggles, which our our thoughts and prayers are with her and her family. But I began to to think we have to we have to change classroom management, especially in the twenty first century. And so, I created a model which is inspect what you expect, and the I stands for looking at oneself first because a lot of the things that trigger me as a parent and a teacher i have to stop because those are probably things that i've been shamed about or something that i was reprimanded for or something that i was told when i was young um, and i hear it often in teachers like i'm not going to let that student disrespect me and then i think okay stop are you reacting or are you really stopping to consider the child and what's going on in them at the time? And that's why my second letter in inspect N is nurture. I think if we created nurturing, safe places where we can learn and we can make mistakes and we can be free and we can explore. I mean, I'm not saying chaos. I'm not saying that teacher, <laughs> you know, I'm not telling teachers just let your, let your, your classroom run wild. That's not good either. But I think this whole idea, I was just talking to somebody the other day about it, that we're still unfortunately using educational models from the industrial age where, you know, you sit and it's bell to bell and we teach bell to bell. Nobody moves. You sit there, you do your work, you do, you know, you do it quietly. A quiet classroom is a productive classroom, we're told. But not only does that not work because we live in the 21st century, so we can't use 1950 models for today. But with our understanding and knowledge of neurodiversity, to expect that is actually counterproductive to learning. Because if kids don't feel safe and they don't feel like they're being affirmed and they don't feel like this is a place where I can be me, their their executive function, prefrontal cortex thinking, rational part of their brain just shuts offline. And so we're actually guilty of many times producing environments that are counter to learning because we're trying to make kids learn without understanding the diversity of the human brain. Well, I have a question for you because I I think people fundamentally don't understand the differences, not just across like West Coast, East Coast, but also states and the individualized from different schools because I was a part of the No Child Left Behind era, and I saw both. I saw where standardized tests helped me, but they also hurt a lot of my classmates. But for your generation, I I want everybody to talk about how do you feel about standardized testing or even assessments? You know, it's tricky. When I was doing my doctoral work, I did a lot of work on how students perform on standardized tests who have been identified as having various learning disabilities. I get standardized testing because in a lot of ways, it's very helpful to have a standard or something in which we can look at a student and say, okay, these are things that they should know, but often those standards aren't fair. So, In one sense, I I know we want to be objective as parents and as educators, even in our own home, right? It's like, well, that's not fair. So then we think I have to give 
brother A and sister B exactly the same thing so I can be fair, but fair is not always equal. So I think in terms of standardized testing, I think COVID kind of helped with this, but I'm, I'm hoping we're starting to see that we need better ways to assess not just where our kids are at in terms of the ABCs and one, two, threes. We need to better assess where they're at socially, emotionally in those areas as well. Now that gets a little fuzzy, right? You can't put a, you can't put a percentile on that. Yeah. But, but I also know that many of the students that I work with don't do well on standardized tests for various reasons, but then they're just given this kind of lump, you're in this group now and you're not performing like everybody else is. And again, what we're doing right there is we're not celebrating diversity. We're saying you need to belong into this mold. Mm. So my hope is, is that that could change, but then I also know that there's a lot of other external factors that go into these tests and who make them and what those numbers mean and what it means in terms of money and all of that kind of stuff. And so I, I, I just chuckle because I often sit and I, and I think, oh, we need so much systemic change. But then I get discouraged because I think, who am I? I'm just one person. And I want your listeners to understand that I'm talking a lot about education and maybe it seems a little negative, but I am not negative towards education. And there are hundreds of thousands of teachers who are neuroaffirming. And I've seen them in my workplace where they take that time and they have that better understanding of what's going on in their students. And I see just the joy in those students' lives. And so, Teaching is hard, parenting is hard. So I wanna come across as not being critical of everyone because I've made tons of mistakes. My wife and I have made tons of mistakes. Even early on when we first adopted them, you know, we, our own children, we were parenting the way we were parented. And you know what? Our parents are doing the be were doing the best that they knew how to do. And teachers in the classroom today are doing the best they know how to do under some pretty difficult circumstances. So I just want to make sure I'm looking at this at a more positive sense. What can we do to continue just to help teachers and parents understand, have empathy, and then choose actions that are actually going to nurture and affirm those who, um, who they work with. And it's not just the neurodivergent, neurotypical kids, it's everybody because neurodiversity is that is that big fact, right? That everyone's yes. brain's different. Well, no, and I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of the my favorite quotes have helped me, and especially neurodiversity's helped me look at my past. And because my parents were not perfect, mm -hmm. but they were usually rebelling against their own parents. They didn't like how they were parented, so they were just doing the best. And I love how people talk today that you know parents currently. I mean, obviously, the phase you're in right now is going to be the hardest phase that you're in, in your parenting journey, but also looking in the past, your parents were only given a certain set of tools and they were doing the best that they had with what they were equipped. And I absolutely love that you're connecting that to education because I agree. And I think the problem isn't so much as, you know, just throw any tool at, at a teacher, you know, I'm a proud, you know, very strong advocate for explicit instruction and modeling. And I think that's so important 
not just for professional development for teachers and admins, but also parents. Mm -hmm. And I feel like during COVID, there was a lot of parents that saw their kids struggling at home and they took that professional development themselves. I talked a lot about how I took the free Cox Campus training to understand structured literacy. And I know a lot of my daughter's old school saw that as a threat more mm. than a, a helpful tool. And I, I see a lot of tribalism and I don't like this distraction of pitting teachers and admin versus parents when the numbers aren't lying. There's a lot of parents like myself that are homeschooling and I don't see the problem of asking homeschool parents, you know, maybe in just an anonymous survey for certain districts of what works in your home, what's working that you're seeing and how would that be implemented in a public school that would make you go back to public school. And I say that because in my location, I remember as a child, we didn't have as many charter schools. It was either you could afford public school or you could afford private school and that was it. Mm -hmm. And charter schools came into the question because parents were angry. And I remember it was like first pitch as like a test kind of guinea pig area. And anything that was helpful in charter school was supposed to trickle down and go back into the public school. And for whatever reason, it just never happened. And now we're kind of in this limbo area of several school options. And I don't, I'm not mad at school choice. I think it's good to have diversity, obviously. But I think it's a disservice to fight for public education that is not inclusive, that is not working for everybody. When the law says that is what works best for humans. And when you have these kids and they're coming from school choice and diverse schools and they leave and they have to go to college and they find out, oh, I have to work with everybody. I don't get to handpick my student body. I don't get to handpick my teachers. My mommy can't do that for me. There's a huge disconnect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is true. And, you know, it's interesting that as you're talking about that, it's, it's, the children that end up having to deal with the consequences of the choices of us adults mm. and and it's just not right I you know I didn't get to choose where I went to school um, I was put in school and I went to public school my whole life and as I think about it and think about this whole again it gets it gets very charged very quickly doesn't it when you have these conversations about well, education it, and schools well, and public education like did you ever get any pushback if you even mentioned that your kids were going to go to public school because i know in our experience people would just like side eye us and be like oh so that's the route that you're choosing and i'm right. like what <laughs> no and then you know full disclosure my children for the most part have been able to go to private school because I taught at the school. Oh, and so, yeah, those see? are perks. Yeah. So those are perks. I will tell you that moving into public school has been for me a deliberate choice mm. based on our conversation. I want the students that I have the opportunity to come across every single day to know that I care about them and their education and knowing that they're there for whatever reason, 
they want to learn and bringing them into the classroom that's very affirming which is not an experience they've always had so i would tell you at the beginning of the year they're a little more they were a little more timid they were a little more skeptical of me because they didn't know me and is this guy gonna what's he gonna do i mean he's a special education teacher but is he gonna you know, is he going to let us just do whatever we want to do all day? Or is he going to be really harsh and very stern? And, you know, I, they just have a lot that they're bringing in. Yes. And so my whole, my whole point was that they should be given, every student in this nation should be given the equal opportunity to be educated by the best teachers who really care and understand them. And then like you said, so important is that partnering with the home. Mm. So that's why as even as inclusion matters, education services, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, we can't neglect the services that we have to support the home because they go hand in hand. And so it's, it's, it's us adults that make this whole thing messy, Always. is what I'm saying. <laughs> we make it messy. And the poor kids are sitting there just like, we just, we actually do want to learn and we actually do want to work and we actually do want to grow. And it's us adults that just keep messing it up for them. And so I like just the purity of that. And so that's why I say, you know, the, the kids, they don't have any choice in it. They're going to go to school where they're told to go to school. Yes. So what we need to do, whether they're at home, because I have two at home now, um, we have two at home that are doing homeschool. We did that because that was the best for them. And, and so, to our children. yeah, yeah. And so we listen to them when we ask them, we hear them, we say, what's going on? And then as parents, now I'm going to speak as a teacher, parents um, have such a vital role in the education of their children. And to me, it's that saying like you, you need a village, right? So we need parents, we need teachers, we need community members. Um, we need everyone coming alongside and being the team that's there to help our kids grow and thrive. All right. And so I, I'm finding that online, I feel like a lot of people are jumping on board and are more open to inclusion today, but to kind of talk about my issue when I was in my daughter's school trying to advocate for her education they kind of had the idea or assumption that they understood what MTSS was or multi-tiered uh, system structures and for me on the outside looking in it seemed like they were just happy with their old RTI or response to intervention and they were just calling it MTSS now and they weren't exactly changing what they were doing and so can you help our listeners kind of understand what inclusion, especially in your business kind of frame of what it's supposed to look like? I'm very familiar with MTSS and RTI. I believe that if it is done well, it could be something that is very powerful in education that is an improvement. Then again, the everybody gets the same thing model, the one size fits all model. Um, and so I think RTI, MTSS, multi-tier systems of support, which actually works for response to intervention, but also can be used in 
behavior models in that. But just sticking with the academics for a moment, I think this idea of being able to bring specialized, individualized, differentiated instructions to students who, it, to all students, doesn't yes. matter, to all students who may need a little more help with their unfinished learning. So the idea is great, right? In, in, in the first tier, your, your general education teachers should be differentiating. They should be using models like the um, UDL, Universal Design for Learning. Yes, yeah. So, so how it should look is, yeah, I'm walking into my class every day as a teacher, and I know I have 30 different brains, and no brain is the same here. And I also have 30 kids coming in from different homes. I have 30 kids coming in that have had different experiences in the morning where some of them have had mom and dad give them a hug. Some of them have had grandparent dropping them off at school. Some have had, you know, upset parent or whatever it might be. So I realize that no one comes in with the same brains. No one comes in with the same experiences. No one comes in with the same abilities. And then I stop and I go, these are 30 little human beings mm. who are very valuable. And I've been entrusted by their caregivers and by the state to educate them. And so how our mindset begins is so important. So whether you're using RTI or this or that, differentiate, whatever you're using, that mindset we come in every day is so important and i think the tools then like rti are helpful because i'm looking at it and saying okay these kids here this group they need a little extra uh, practice on this math concept it doesn't mean they're any worse or better than any anybody they just this is the area where they need to be stretched mm -hmm. right and and these stretches are areas of growth in our lives that we need with the help of others so I just say these, these, these ones here, the, the, these guys over here, okay, they got it down. We're okay. These ones here, I want to get them so that they're at a place where they're growing in the areas of their need. And really stretches are also testings of our limits, which are necessary to build resilience. So we, we don't build resilience unless we're being stretched. Then the plan is that there's going to be a few that may, for some reason or another, may need some extra support in those areas. And again, it's that's going to happen. And we've noticed that even coming out of the pandemic. Yes. And there's I a lot of. I want to ask you, though, so how how powerful, because I think a lot of people don't understand, like, I think when they hear mindset, they're like, oh, well, that's not for me. And I, I felt that way before too, but I, I wish I could better explain to people that once you shift to that mindset and kind mm -hmm. of like a, a good example I can give as a parent is I remember as a kid, my mom would always tell me, oh, well, you know, don't like, don't leave my eyesight. And mm -hmm. I would just be like, okay, fine. Right. But I remember as mm -hmm. a kid, I would be like, wait, can she see me? I don't know if she can see me. Am mm -hmm. I going to get in trouble? And so with mm -hmm. my own children, I've shifted that into telling them, if you can't see mommy and daddy and shifting it from their perspective, instead of just mine, mm 
Mm-hmm. That helps them know explicitly, mm-hmm. oh, if I can't see mommy and daddy, I'm in trouble. I need to go right. find them. Right. Yes, that that's so important because then that mindset is going to travel to our children and it really can give them a sense of, of safety and security. So going back to the, the RTI model, the kids know that they're in this small group, not because they're dumber than anybody yes. or they're the special ed kid. They just know that this is the area I need to be stretched in. And that whole, so inclusion, I know what you say inclusion. helps that, you know, if a kid kind of has that trust with the teacher to say, hey, I don't get this concept. Can I work with you Mm -hmm. versus, oh, I see you're failing in this subject. You need to come with me now. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're giving that autonomy, that choice and voice is so important to building our kids and building their resilience. So yeah, it, it's huge and it's contagious. So if you had a classroom that had that kind of atmosphere to it, you begin to see even the students helping each other. Yes, I see that at home because my daughter, she feels empowered when she sees her younger brother struggle in a similar, it doesn't have to be exact same, but she'll relay some information mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. be like, well, I did it this way. Let's mm-hmm. see if that works for you. And mm-hmm. she doesn't feel attached. She doesn't feel like she has to control him. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, she doesn't even know what hand over hand is. But she's not trying to mm-hmm. force him to do something she did. But she feels proud. And they tell each other, like, I'm proud of you. Yeah. When they both work on a skill. You, you mentioned a very important word in all of this conversation. That's the word control. Mm. We could go on and on about, you know, you need another 40, another 10 Zoom sessions. But yeah, this whole control, like, we feel better about ourselves as adults, the more we can control. And control, ultimately, to me is an illusion, right? I can only control very few things. And even about myself, there's things I can't control because my brain just wants to do things it, like right now. I mean, we've been sitting here talking my brain and I probably should do this, but my brain and my body are telling me I need to get up and move around and stretch. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And so is there something inherently wrong with that? Absolutely not. But go ahead and tell me what's your internal narrative to tell you don't do that. Yeah. It's those, it's those external norms. So there's the norm that when you're on a conversational call with somebody on zoom, it's kind of, is she going to think I'm rude? Is she awkward or rude? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. And and, and it's so true. And it comes down even with little stem. Like I see this all the time in staff meetings where, where teachers will be shaking their leg or they're, they're like moving and fidgeting. Right. And I'm thinking, I think we we would never tolerate students doing that in our class, but what's the difference? You know, there isn't any. We're human beings and we have to. But again, you're talking about those constructs. What is she going to think of me? What what's socially acceptable? What what can I? And and so many of those rules are just based (laughs) based on our our, you know, our traditions. In fact, it just remind me, I just put out a blog yesterday, you know, it says exclusion, which is what we see a lot of exclusion. That yeah. Exclusion is the opposite of inclusion. And I believe that we wouldn't even have to have this conversation about inclusion if exclusion didn't exist. But because exclusion exists, we have to have a term inclusion. But I said exclusion often happens because of misunderstandings, 
fear, and then I put this one, sticking too closely to rigid traditions, and I should add one more, or the attempt to want to be in control. So question, do so you I like might etymology? Edit that. Do I like etymology? I love it. Me too. And for me, it's selfishly like a neurodiversity. I feel like it's a shortcut to a lot of what people, like you said, stick to norms. But yep. I love evaluating how norms change over time, mm -hmm. how they grow, and how mm -hmm. we have the power as community mm -hmm. to make that word either work for us or against mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. But no, I love so what you're talking about because... and. Even when you mentioned control, my brain was also telling me, like, that's also a privilege that a lot of people that have, if you've given those foundational blocks, like I know love, people love to talk about executive functioning. And from my, thankfully, structured literacy understanding is people love to talk about the product. They don't deconstruct or talk about the building blocks to get you mm -hmm. to that product. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love learning about neuroscience. And it's not to say like, I'm looking at brain scans as a mom. Like I don't have time. No, <laughs> but I do love reading blogs like sure. yours or articles to understand that. Yeah. Like when I use my high order thinking, it's because I got phonics because I've read books because I talked to other humans who have different experiences mm -hmm. and I've tested what works. I've gone through trial and error, which is just life where my kids are going to fail and I can't expect perfection when they're young. <laughs> or even when they're older. I mean, we don't, yes. we're not perfect. Well, and yeah, tell I, me that, how do you feel? Cause I feel like you could expand your company to even nursing homes because I feel like we shouldn't stop inclusion at any age. We nope. should talk about inclusion in birth, you know, parenting, workplace, even end of life. Everybody deserves inclusion. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Inclusion, again, is not a program. You know, we, I have lots of books behind me. You know, here, here's how to build inclusive schools. <laughs> but it's... And it's important, right? I mean, there are things that we can do to become more inclusive. But again, it comes back to that mindset. It comes yes. back to that mindset. And so inclusion, like inclusion is more caught than taught. So as we go in and we're being inclusive, which is a human right, I believe, to be able to belong. The UN said it. Yes, the United yes. Nations says it's a human right. To be right. able, exactly, to be able not, and, and I, I, sort of differentiate inclusion and belonging i think inclusion me i think somebody can be included but not belong yeah. so at inclusion matters we try to push more towards the belonging end of the spectrum because if we were going on a family trip we could include you and you would be a guest and we would say okay you get to do everything we do but you're not valued and you have no choice in voice and you are just lucky to be along. And I think that's somehow translated even into education where, well, you're just lucky that you can be in the general education class. And you're like, what? What do you mean? This isn't a privilege for a few. That Everyone should have an opportunity to be with their peers and to learn. Doesn't mean we can't do pullouts and, and give extra supports. But the idea is, is that you not only are lucky to be included, but you should be able to go into a classroom every day where you belong. 
Yes, and my struggle is is I I don't know if it was because of No Child Left Behind or because I grew up in a military town, but I remember the school policies were a lot more inclusive. Like my mom, when we lived in a different state for my birthday, could bring a cake and have no problem. And that changed <laughs> in the early 2000s because they understood that certain children would feel excluded if they didn't get a piece. Mm-hmm. And I saw that shift change when my daughter went to school, they would just say, oh, we'll make sure there's enough snacks for everybody. And they didn't understand the social implication of, well, what if one kid has a allergy? Or what if one kid's parent couldn't provide snacks that week? And they, sadly, when things would happen, my daughter would come home and make those comments of like, oh, so-and-so didn't get a snack today, or oh, I didn't finish my work, so I didn't get to have my snack. But they thought it was inclusive because they put it in her backpack. They didn't have the forethought to think, oh, she wasn't included in the ritual of snack time, and that was exclusion. It, it It is easier, but more harmful when we think to be inclusive means well every everybody gets something yes again going back to the idea fair means equal right so if i you know and, and and as a society but even as individuals we tend to shift that way i think naturally because again it's easier to say one size fits all this is the rule no matter who you are just comply to this rule and everything will be great mm. And that's just not the way diversity works. And so as we're thinking through inclusion in in school or at home, we're thinking we're and I love how you use the term celebrate. We're celebrating who we are as individuals, as part of various backgrounds, cultures, um, ideas. And and we're saying that different is okay. So it doesn't have to be scary. You and it doesn't know. have to be scary. Exactly. Yeah, so we'd rather scary. say, we're not going to do anything so that nothing happens. You know, and then you have like two sides of or multiple sides, but usually there's, there's two sides of that. You know, it's like, well, you know, now they want to cancel everything. And then you have the other side. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, yeah. again, we as adults are trying to, you know, control and, and get our ideologies to make force adults that upon everybody. For yeah. Children. <laughs> yeah. And they're just like, we just want to celebrate because, you know, because of their heritage or we want to celebrate. And if they don't want to celebrate in a particular heritage, we're going to still say we value you and your your heritage your tradition. And what can we do to ensure that you are belonging as part of our family? Different is messy, but different is beautiful. And so that's how we are growing in my mind is is shaping because I'll tell you that even in the last three years, really since COVID, my mind shift has changed tremendously from the way that I used to think, which was just far more rigid, far more. And when everything kind of shut down and then we had all the events that were going on in our nation, politics, race, you know, even in education, kids not being able to get online because they could not get access um, because of social economics. And, you know, I mean, it just, to me, it was like, 
the pandemic was an opportunity for us as a nation, as a culture to open our eyes to things. But it, I'm seeing that now that it's kind of quote unquote back to normal, you know, we've kind of not yeah. just gone back to the old ways, but we've, in, we've intensified the old ways. And so that scares me because I'm like, you know, we're trying to make progress in these areas of diversity, but it just seems like we keep going backward. And again, who are the ones that are getting the worst end of the deal? And that's the kids. Well, and how do you feel about people and administrations using COVID as an opportunity to blame what wasn't working in the past on just COVID? That's what I struggle with because we have a 21% illiteracy rate in adults. That didn't happen overnight with COVID. No. Those, <laughs> you know what I no. mean? Like those yeah. are problems we had prior to, and we can't put a Band-Aid on it and we can't ignore it and expect that problem to go away. Yeah, we, we as adults don't. We want accountability, but we often don't want to be held accountable. So what happens a lot of times is we'll look for something else to say, this is the problem, right? <laughs> this is the problem. This is what, this is why this is happening. And again, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you're going to shoot across the, the bow and say it's their fault, you know, and, and so on and so forth. I think, I think again, to me, the way moving forward is and, I, and I've been, I'm just going to say this live, is that sometimes we just need to totally break the system in order to really rebuild it and fix it. And our education system is broken. And we're, we're trying everything that we can to put the band-aids on it. I think it's a term that you used earlier. <laughs> and really, we need to get down to, to the building blocks and foundation. What is education? What is it for? You know, it's it's everybody says that again across the aisle they're using education to indoctrinate. Everybody's indoctrinating. Everybody has their agendas. Could you everybody imagine if we had that ability? <laughs> yeah, just to say, hey, let's just knock the whole thing down. And yes, people have tried that. You to love inclusion and diversity, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, and it's interesting because if you look at the history of education we've had those leaders who tried yes who really did try and there was always others question, and other social forces feel, and i'll say that because honestly the pandemic made me look at that because i i had to look deep into my past and wonder why did i have a good education and when i looked at the history of gifted education and even like just the history of kindergarten in this country, it's connected to people that love public education. They were idealists, so optimism was involved. But a lot of what I see in the current structure is these ideologies are always in the specialty, not in the general education classroom. And it's interesting to me how we know it works. We just don't know how to apply it universally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, when I was in high school in the late 80s, I can remember teachers openly talking about how even then they saw things that were kind of being mandated on teachers and schools and that and saying this doesn't work. You know, why are we using this? But 
it still gets kind of pushed along. And so well, I don't have that's a good point, because a lot if you look at the history, a lot of what we're seeing today is similar to the 80s. Uh-huh. And because we had illiteracy, that's when Hooked on Phonics came onto the scene. Yeah. We had a teacher shortage and we had teachers being underpaid. And uh-huh. the whole solution was wait till the 90s. You know, uh-huh. President Bush or President Clinton, they'll solve that problem. Uh-huh. We don't know what to do today. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I remember actually growing up Republican and listening to then candidate Bill Clinton talk about changes of education whether they happened or not Mm. but i was he he did fund the whole balanced literacy thing but for me i we know how politicians are do they look at the paperwork they don't and so you know but what caught my attention was there was somebody on the screen that actually cared or seemed to care about education and then you're then you're just disappointed again because you know no one person no matter who they are where they're from what their background is what their political affiliations are no no one person is going to be able to change it systematically it it's yeah and then like you said it's it's those making decisions who often don't always understand what's going on every day in a classroom but can i ask you a question did you watch or what what shows did you watch as a kid like tv shows did you watch like pbs shows at all when i was younger in elementary school i would watch a lot of PBS. Um, I'll, I'll admit, I was a Mr. Rogers fan when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, I love Mr. Rogers. Well, I you know, because when I was doing my research and I was reading the work of Jean Chaw, a lot of people, you know, we get bogged down in these politics, but people mm-hmm. don't realize that almost everybody grew up watching PBS, no matter what. We love Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if because he was supposed to be a minister, but he chose not to because he saw his career in TV. But not everybody's religious, but they connect with Mr. Mm-hmm. Rogers. And Gian Chal's the reason we had the electric company and they had mm-hmm. phonemic awareness teaching there. She influenced Sesame Street. And a lot of people, I have a friend that does the Dear Reading Teacher podcast, and she talked to somebody who's a very good advocate, Missy Purcell in Georgia. And she remembers the letter people. And mm-hmm. for me, and I've been done research. I mean, Atlanta, obviously, everybody loves Ted Turner, but he helped funded Dr. Seuss books and mm-hmm. certain like that nightly hour where you get literacy in audio form. And mm-hmm. for me, it's like, how do we have all these things that worked and they were separate? These were mm-hmm. private and public institutions working together to better society. What happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just an education. I think you can find analogies to it in things like health. You know, I mean, we're told, okay, drinking red wine is good for your heart. And then somebody will come out and say, no, it's not. And then, you know, this diet is, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then, yeah. And then, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, oh my goodness. And so I think it's kind of the same thing in education is even more so just like in medicine that human beings are incredibly complex Mm. and we want to i think we're reductionist by nature meaning that we always want to reduce things down to the simplest terms which is good at times but you know when things work there's going to be something that says but this isn't working and then like you said you went to the whole balanced literacy and 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 that whole thing and then somebody it's was making sw- money but somebody's swinging back to the other side <laughs> exactly 
I, I'll tell you, to me, I just kind of talked about reductionism, but for me, there is some simpleness to it. And that is, I think the guys like Bukowski and others got it right when they said the best learning takes place when you have another human being next to you who's really there to care for you and to put you in this zone where you're going to be forced to stretch and it's going to be hard and uncomfortable, but I'm right there to guide you and to help you through it. Yeah. And as much as I watched Sesame Street and, and Mr. Rogers and Electric Company and all those things when I was a kid, it was those teachers who simply took the time to sit down with me and say, look, here, here's where you are at as a learner. Let's take some time and, and develop that. Now, I was, I was an early reader, and I didn't even know much about phonics until I became a teacher. How I learned to read is my mom sat down and she would read to me from this little book. I think it was something about the lady who puts stuff in the pot and it keeps growing and growing and growing. I don't remember the name of that story, that fairy tale, but she read it to me and then she would have me read it with her. Which and is then oral reading sometimes. Or, yes. You know, reading together. Yes. And then I would and then I would be able to read it on my own. So I didn't know anything about, you know, A says at or any of that. Which can we pause there? Because I have so much pushback when I try to tell people that explicit instruction and gradual release of responsibility does start with childcare first. Mm -hmm. And you see it in mentorship and you see mm -hmm. it in apprenticeship. And I don't mm -hmm. understand why it ever left teaching. Yeah. And, and really, yeah, I just think it ha it can start early and we don't, and even in that, we don't have to put kids through rigorous instruction. It's just teaching that I can remember as a kid, just trying to read the, the billboards or something. And, and my parents would just help me to understand, you know, so I always collaborate. had an, yes, collaborate. A, yeah, an appreciation for print and, but it wasn't like print was scary. Print was fun. And well, pause. Let's talk about this. You had more hand lettering in your experience. Like, but I would say even like Canva in schools is fun when you have like, I remember, well, I'm an internet kid. So like we had mm -hmm. Tumblr and topography mm -hmm. and that was fun. Even like making graphics for like my social media, like playing with font is fun. Seeing the mm -hmm. different aspects is fun. Mm -hmm. And as I've incorporated a lot of that into my literacy time this year, I've seen the the kids who have been identified as struggling readers and writers blossom. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at IEP goals and I'm going, okay, I see what the goal says. Do you see the kid in those goals? I see in the, what I see is a kid who is capable to go beyond the goal. So I have one stu I have one student who had a goal of they were to use text to speech, uh, no, reverse that speech to text, uh, to write four sentences about a topic, and so I saw that, but I saw what the student was able to do and how eager they were to to grow and to want to learn, and so. Uh, we have these big, they're called LFDs. They're like touchscreen, big screen TVs. And so I turned on the 
word processor, the Google Doc, sat her desk in front of it, put the keyboard in front of her, and I said, let's write together. Mm. And what topic do you want to talk about? She said, I want to talk about my, my puppies, my dogs. Okay. The language skills are there. Yes. She just needed that zone of proximal development Trust, of somebody to go the there. Safety, the exactly. To say that I can do this and I can mess up and my teacher is going to be there to guide me along the way. And I wish I could show you the four sentences that she actually typed herself. And then when she didn't know how to spell a word, we stopped for a moment gave some instruction, had her work on it, and then she actually wrote out the words on an index card. I said, well, let's put these, I'm going to stick this word up here. Then it became, wow, I'm actually building the word wall. Can yeah. we put this word up there? Can we put this word up there? Can we put this word up there? And so now it was her, and that's a huge part of it too, is that when the kids are able to be a part of the process and create and own what they're doing, that's when the learning goes up. If we as teachers do everything, or parents, we do everything, and then we wonder why aren't they more responsible, we only have to look at ourselves and say, were we giving them those opportunities to grow? Were we giving them those opportunities to stretch? Can our children understand that failure is not a bad thing or a reflection on their value? Failure is an opportunity to grow. Oh, I love how you phrased that. So I have a question for you because I, I'm thrifting old books and I can't say for certain that, you know, teachers of the past had more freedom, but do you notice a difference with your ability to teach? Because obviously you're in the realm of special education versus a more general education teacher that might have to follow like a script or a curriculum. Yeah, that's a big topic as well. I, I personally right now don't feel like there's a lot of limits. I think being neuroaffirming, understanding what I'm trying to develop, there are so many different tools out there to do that, that I don't get stuck in. I have to use just one thing. Mm. I like to, I'm very eclectic in the sense where I like to just gather from lots of different things as long as I know that it's it's sound, it's evidence-based, it's, it's backed by research and good practice. And so I don't get into that a lot. I mean, we have a curriculum at the school um, and I use that a lot to help in terms of understanding where I can give them tools and inroads into learning. But I think it's a lot, again, going back to knowing who the kids are and what they need. And so I don't get stuck on, on that end of it. I think there's so much. And, and in honesty, like we're gonna start, a, for literacy, we're gonna start a project this coming week where um, they're going to take the school culture and values and they're going to write a comic book for second graders and they're in fourth and fifth grade. Oh, that's so cool. So I like, I like generating stuff Yes. because that helps the kids. So I don't always use a lot of stuff from the outside because I know the more that they can generate, the better they're learning. So that's so important to me that they're given a chance 
to have their work showcased and even just some simple writing things and even some free writing things i put it up on the wall and they come in and hey look look or they go back to their general education teacher and say look what i wrote today and so a lot of it is i want the students to generate i want them to write i want them to and then as they get older i know those critical skills will become more and more important. And I know they'll get that in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. So my my focus right now is opening doors for them and just seeing that they can learn, which they are. I mean, they're blowing my mind. And that their faces are lighting up when they're seeing that they're learning. And so to me, it's again, I think I've been saying this the whole podcast, it's about them. Yeah. It's not about me. It's not about, or what I think or whatever. I, I'm just looking at how can I best empower each one of these kiddos? Well, and that's I have my goal. to say, like, I, it's hard for me because we've personally been through public school. My husband's had mm -hmm. a little bit of magnet school experience he currently works at a, um, it's not the one we live in, but a local uh, elementary school. And we've been through the virtual school process. I liked that, but I feel like what you're saying is true. Like you can have the best curriculum, but if the teacher doesn't have that confidence, and I wouldn't even say it's necessarily all the training, because I don't think every training is the same. I think it's important to have that specific mindset and confidence to apply to help that teacher and I know I didn't have confidence at the beginning of our journey but now with my training and understanding of neurodiversity I absolutely have the confidence to teach my kids and I don't fear if we do have to enroll them into a school again I thankfully have joined groups and found explicit instructions from other parents of how to go about doing that. And I think that's a skill that I hate to see kind of be taken away from some teachers. Cause I feel like during the pandemic, a lot of teachers connected over like a website called teacher pay teacher uh -huh. or, um, you know, certain where they could collaborate and talk about uh -huh. resources and share and I don't think it's as simple as saying like, oh, well, I'm a balanced literacy teacher. Or, oh, I'm a science of reading teacher. I think we need to value the individual and see their specialty and, you know, what are they good at? And I think that definitely aligns with neurodiversity because for me, I've, I know that inclusive practices will say, oh, well, you know, gifted kids will do great if every teacher gets a gifted endorsement but you don't know what that is. Like, is that an hour? Was that a 30 hour course? Like, what was that? And what do they actually even know what a gifted student looks like? Because the problem we had in school was <laughs> not to joke, but the administration would say, well, all children are bright. And for me, that was a red flag. And they would say, well, I have 30 years of experience of education and you know try to talk down to me and as if i didn't know what gift this was and whenever i mentioned like well i literally am 30 years old and you're not going to lift listen to a student that was identified as gifted where is that disconnect um but do you ever think that we'll go back to kind of trusting the individual of teachers i hope so it's hard i know that generally education is 
not in a good place in terms of teachers. It's hard to get teachers. A lot of teachers have been spending lots of years, decades doing what we're talking about and are tired or they're not getting the support from others. And just like just like the saying, if you meet one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism. I think the same is true in education and public school. We can't just, you know, if we're gonna be neuro affirming, we gotta be careful. And I do this too, is not to, you know, lump everything into kind of one big group. General thing. <laughs> uh, general, yeah, like all public school is bad. No, not all public schools are bad. The public school I teach at is amazing. Like, and what makes it that way? I think there's a lot of factors, but there's well, a question, sense how do you feel when people kind of expect your school to kind of like copy and paste in somewhere else when you know that's not as easy yeah because <clears throat> again every in, every student is an individual every student comes with their unique experience every school even within the same district even within the same city is going to have different students coming in from different backgrounds they're going to live in and breathe in different kinds of cultures and so i guess what i'm saying is that we just need to be more in tune with our students with the culture around us with what's going on and that being attuned more to that makes us not only better parents and teachers but better human beings i think like you said you made you mentioned earlier about social media can become and it did during the pandemic, a huge echo chamber. Yes. So what's happening is people are only following and listening and commenting on their own one narrow perspective. And then, and then they're trolling everybody else because they don't see their perspective. And I'm looking at this going, this isn't the way we were meant to be as humans, not the sense of trying to eliminate disagreement and discourse, I think that's good. And I think even as you talked about books or banned books or whatever, I, I think finding out about different perspectives, I don't know. I don't know why there's such a fear of that, except that, again, we lose control as adults. And so if a kid reads something that I don't agree with and then starts to think about it and think, well, maybe this is this is this is valid, you know, where's the discourse, but not only the discourse, but the humanness of the discourse. And unfortunately, I love social media and I think it's great. And I love posting on it, but we're missing a human element out of it because it's just easy to type into a faceless box to faceless people and not understanding their story, their narrative, where they're coming from. And so it, my thing was always like, we got to get people into the same room but not only that, but get them into each other's lives and really understand. And we have no right to say or do anything until we've taken some time to get to know somebody's story. And it's easy to knock down straw man arguments and, you know, political or religious or whatever affiliations. But when it comes down to it, we've got to bring the humanity back to it. And that's, that's where I come back to. And that's why I'm neuro affirming, because I know, as a basic fundamental law of the universe, all of us are different. Yeah. All of us have different stories, all of us have different backgrounds. All of us have faced various adversities. 
most of us, if statistics are correct, have experienced some kind of traumatic event in our lives. Well, we all did. It was called the pandemic. Yes. And so that's just, that's yes. just basic, right? But add on to that, what's going on. And then instead of blaming people, we're getting to know their story and going, look at, they did this, not because, but they had, not because of the reasons we think, but because they were going through their own struggles at the time. And can so that's a funny story about being go ahead in my family so my mom because she's adhd she's always rebelled she's never banned a book in her house ever uh-huh. my husband's the opposite where his adhd mother um is on the opposite side of that spectrum where when schools were saying banned harry potter because they didn't want witchcraft oh yeah uh-huh. in schools so his self he had to sit outside the classroom and do a math worksheet mm-hmm. cut to a few years ago his sister is in high school and they're doing a Harry Potter play. Did his mom say that she couldn't do the play? Of course not, because that would be exclusion. So she got to do the play. So for me, it's like a real dichotomy because I'm also seeing, like, I, as much as I want to support banned books, I'm also, like, we went to, I went to have coffee with my sister this Sunday in Barnes & Noble, and it was a Sunday in the South, in Georgia, Mm-hmm. This was like at 1 p.m. and it was busy. People mm. were shopping. They were buying. Mm-hmm. And I had to think in my mind, would this be possible without the topic of banned books? I don't think so. Mm. And also we went to one of our favorite bookstores and they had like a full banned book section. And they even had like a, a dyslexia book section I was so proud of. And just like you're saying, like, I don't think we should fear conversation we shouldn't fear differences opinions my question is is like why are people so ready to talk about being books but not about illiteracy or not about how language and literacy and behavior are all connected like just like you're saying you're opening doors at school i'm like let's open doors mm-hmm. on this conversation like oh you mm-hmm. want to talk about being books come on mm-hmm. <laughs> well again the the whole thing with banned books is control (laughs) control it's easy it's easy for me right now to type out a list of books that i don't think agrees with my values or the values of my constituents or whoever and then boom put that out so it's inadvertently created probably a really good book list for somebody who wants to know that (laughs) well exactly so you're gonna exactly so you're always gonna have those who are are going to be okay we just this you know I'm going to date myself, right? But footloose, right? No dancing in the town. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about? So the whole idea is it's just easier, right? We just ban it. It's done, right? No, we, question, we don't should have... that be an inclusion uh, for your website? Like, what is your personal banned book list? What <laughs> yeah, maybe. And then maybe the person that loves those books. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's my whole point is that you're always going to have Kevin Bacon, right? You're always going to have, and it doesn't matter. It's like, Lord it's Parmois funny. Is... <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's funny that, that you say this because, um, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that our parents were rebelling against something mm. that their parents were rebelling against. My generation rebelled. You know, my parents grew up in the in the sixties and seventies, right? And you know that whole counterculture there. And then my generation was fine. You know, so it's kind of like funny that there's this sense where they were built against cheap prices. Why? Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, but you got this thing where somebody's going to ban the book. It's easier, right? It's easier to ban a book than to sit in a classroom and teach somebody how to read. Teaching yes. somebody how to read is hard. It takes a yes. lot of work. I don't get instant gratification. I can't sit. I cannot sit down with my students and say, I'm going to apply the three basic principles of reading and you will be a reader after I apply these. It's hard well, because the question, it is, is that I don't think that's social media either. Like if I look at a modern book today or a parenting book, what do they say? Do this in three easy steps, 10 easy steps, right? Where and, I thrift old readers and they tell you straight up, this is not easy. This is not easy. Hard. Right. And I think we still need tips. I think it's helpful to condense things down because there's, there's so much information in our day and age than even I had when I was a kid. I mean, I had to look up stuff on in this thing called an encyclopedia. There was no Google. So did you buy the whole letters or did you only get one? <laughs> you know, we had the whole set, I think, at my, you know, I think we had the whole set at that's, home. That's, I think it was the encyclopedia, it was the Encyclopedia Britannica. And the only reason my parents spent and they didn't have the money to buy them. Um, so what my parents did was, particularly my mom, because she knew I loved reading, is is that she did the subscription. So yeah, we would get like a letter a month or every two months. So it took like yes. a long time to get the whole set. Well, this is super you know, expensive. I've never, I've never shared this story because I've shared how like I've gotten caught cheating in first grade for spelling, right? But I did make my mom like back in the day when PBS would put out like, oh, buy this like book set or get the subscription mm -hmm. and you get a free shirt. So I remember I got a shirt that said dinosaur and I wore it on a Friday when I had a spelling test for the word dinosaur. Mm -hmm. You can't get in trouble when it's on your shirt. <laughs> That's right. I wore the shirt. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's that sense that we were talking about where it's hard, you know, and, and it's good. It's good to reduce things down. Like I said earlier, it's good to give parents at least three steps to start with or five steps to start with, with the understanding that um, there are always going to be the need for there's always going to be the need for that human element so our systems yes. are great but we have Question, to be willing to be flexible feel, how do you feel when you can't explain that connection you know what i mean and i, I did want to ask like because i feel like you've shared how you build rapport with students but how do you feel about rapport with your administrators yeah i i i am a huge I'm a huge team player. Mm. So I want to collaborate. I want to come at it at a positive. So if I see things in others that that I might not agree or think that it could be done better, again, I have to first check myself. You yes. know, I have to say, okay, first of all, what is my motive? What is my my heart behind this? Am I just trying to look smart? Am I trying to make my life easier? Am I trying to get out of or whatever they may be? And then I have to come back, okay, what's going to be best for the kids? And then it comes down to being able, I think we can be very strong in our convictions of something, but we can also be very, um, I'll use the word winsome, where we're trying to help each of us grow and learn because there's things the way I do right now that probably aren't the best way to do it, but it's the only way I know how. And so somebody can come into my class and say, hey, have you ever tried doing this? Mm. And I would think, sure. If they come in and they say, you're doing this all wrong. And this is, this is, you know, and this speaks to the parent school relationship, you know, as parents too, if we're coming in and we're going, you're doing this wrong and you're not this. I have found that I've gotten a lot more done by team collaboration saying, okay, 
let's talk it through. Let's let's look at things. Let's be open to different ideas. Let's be open to trying out some things. And if it doesn't work, that's great. But we know why, because these typical learners are these learners, not typical, these learners, they need to receive this where these learners need to receive something else. And so um, when I, I think part of it is growing out of my rejection sensitive dysphoria where I don't want to let people down, but I realize you can't operate that way in the world. Ooh, but I it doesn't but it doesn't mean somebody, I have to blow people over. Yeah, well somebody told me that the other day is like um when you go into therapy, you actually have to go to therapy yourself and know your triggers. I don't understand why that doesn't translate to kind of every field because I feel like that is valuable as a teacher or even as a parent to know what triggers you so you don't take it personally. So tell me if like, because obviously you recognize rejection yourself. So you're going to have more empathy mm -hmm. recognizing rejection in other children. Do you see mm -hmm. that in admin too? I see that in everybody. Um, I go at the basic premise that everybody really is trying to do the best job. Yeah. You know, they're really trying their hardest to do the best. I really believe that. I mean, I know that Times get hard and may not put a lot of effort in, but you know, it's like, we're all trying to do our best. Admin have so many responsibilities and so many people to, um, to, to work with, you know? And I was talking to another teacher the other day and just, cause I've been a, a, an administrator in a school, principal in a school, and we need a lot of grace on ourselves and we need a lot of grace on others because we like don't, it? again, it's, did you like, did I like being an administrator? You know, somebody asked me that question today, actually. They're like, what do you think? Would you ever go into admin? I said, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. And there's likes and dislikes to both. There's things that I can do in a classroom. I feel very satisfied because I'm seeing the results as I'm working with my students. Mm -hmm. But as I see that there are also systemic changes that need to happen. Sometimes I realize that being a principal or being an administrator or being a director is a good place to be in order to bring the conversation into a, a bigger circle than just my classroom. So, there, you know, it's a both and for me, it's I love the classroom. I love teaching. Um, but there were things I was I was able to implement as a principal that were able to affect lots of kids and beyond the classroom. So I think, again, we're playing to our strengths. And I think that my strength isn't necessarily administration. It's more being a classroom teacher. But whether that, what, I, I think that administrators are administrators because for the most part, they do wanna make that big difference. And I see that in the administrators that I've worked with over the years that there was genuinely a desire to see the kids learn and grow. And that's why I think I've been able to thrive in my profession because I've always had that support and always have had that encouragement. And is it always perfect? No, but I don't, I don't worry about that because that's not my burden to carry. So my burden to carry right now are the students that are on my caseload that I can be able to give them the best that they deserve. And then also here at home with my kiddos to make sure that they're, they're getting dad as well. So, yeah.
which no, I, I need to go help that. that because I see online and I'll, I'll tell you, it's mostly on Facebook, but a lot of people, if they're a teacher that is usually resistant, their first attack is like, well, have you been a teacher before? Or even like if yeah. they're running for the board or they're running for any admin spot, they'll be like, well, you, that's people who've been out of the classroom. But my question to them would be like, how, like, what if you are really good in the classroom? Why would you leave the classroom setting to try and do something that you're not specialized at? And I wouldn't necessarily expect a principal to be, you know, a perfect classroom teacher. I guess we expect people to graduate out of certain levels. And I, I think you're spot on. I don't think we should expect a specialty to come out of nowhere. I think it's a developed skill and it's a match of skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. And I, it, well, I'm a mom and I hated being called just a mom in IEP meetings because I feel like I, I was the best advocate for my dog. Yeah. Like I felt yeah. like I did have that skill set of knowing what it was like to be a student, know it was like to, you know, have my mom not adv- advocate for me and then mm-hmm. become a mom and know what to do to advocate. And I felt really bad because I felt like there was really good teachers and there was really good admin, but Mm -hmm. there wasn't a good point person to, I mean, maybe there should be like an inclusion specialist in schools or, you know, Mm -hmm. have a separate principal with that framework in mind, because it is tough to expect one human to do so many jobs and I, I think my perspective is skewed because in my high school, we didn't have, we like, we knew we had one main principal, but we had about like five, sure. like assistant principals. And I know it's sure, not right. normal today. A lot of those people retired, you know, due to COVID, mm-hmm. but even then, like we had substitute teachers that were former admin. So it was a more supportive atmosphere and community mm-hmm. and let's say you had a problem with the student, you know, there was at least one person in the community who knew who that student was or knew who their parents were or knew who their grandparents mm-hmm. were. And it was a lot more understanding of, okay, uh-huh. like this is an individual at a certain time in their life, not to mention hormones uh-huh. are involved. <laughs> There's so many different yeah, things I- going on. And, you know, data doesn't define a student always. And I don't understand where that disconnect happened. And I agree with you. I feel like COVID should have woken us up and Uh pulled the wool over everybody's eyes to realize that Uh you can't just keep pushing this cart to go along Uh because it's grandfathered in. You are given the reins. You have the opportunity to see what works, see what Uh doesn't work, and try something different. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm hoping that and hearing your experience too, um, you know, again, it's kind of what we've been getting at in this whole conversation is, is that it sounds like you had more of that small community feel versus the industrial factory feel. And I think that's where the disconnect can happen when there's budgets and there's large number of students and short number of teachers. And, you know, you're like, we just got to keep this thing going. Which and I'm not we don't always have that. Luxury. I had perfect. We'd had terrible trailers too. Like I had to walk through the rain, not uphill or in snow, but to go to a yeah. trailer. But some yeah. of these schools today are like they have elevators, they have stairs, and I could understand a student might feel insignificant mm-hmm. or lost. Sure. And it's hard to you know sure. remind a kid that 
you know, you might not feel that education is important at this time. Like my husband hears it all the time. Sadly, kids are like, why do I need to learn math? Yeah. And reading? <laughs> what am I going to use this when I can put a phone in my face and make, you know, a thousand dollars, like doing nothing pretty much. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to compete with that. But I think the truth is when you strip it down, if you don't learn how to read and write and do math, you're, you're restricting yourself from your own possibility of a civil right. Because Mm -hmm. when it comes to the day that you do need to fight for yourself or self-advocate, you won't have the tools to do it. And that's what we want. We want the tools. We want to supply and empower the kids with the tools that they're going to need so that whatever it is they venture into, they have those opportunities to do well. And, you know, as, as we think about it and as we kind of, for me, I think, bring it all together, there's this thought about how and why we do what we do. And it comes from the Japanese concept of ikigai, which is kind of this lived purpose. And the four foundations of that are we, we do what we love, we do what we're good at, we do what we can do to support ourselves and our families, because that is important. And then we do, so we do what we love, we do what we're good at, we do what we can support ourselves with. But ultimately, we also have to consider what can we do that helps other people, that mm. benefits others. And so as we're talking, yeah, as we're talking about neuro affirming cultures and schools and homes, I think if we can get those elements in our mind and think, okay, as a teacher, yes, I'm going to get paid to be a teacher. I might not get paid what I want or what I think I deserve, but ultimately I'm doing what I love. I'm doing what I'm good at and I'm doing what is going to help these students and families most. And so, however... Did you go into teaching expecting to be a millionaire or did you understand that sacrifice going into it? Oh, I always understood the sacrifice because of the teachers that I had. And again, I was blessed to have extremely good teachers and really good um, frames of reference for me. So, you know, that's. Oh, question. When did you know you wanted to be a teacher? When did that hit? I was probably, well, that's a good question. For most of my childhood, I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. Mm. And then I realized that I could do the same thing being a teacher. And so it was it was having a long string of teachers who were just incredible in molding and shaping my life. And then as I would help people, and I saw that I could help people understand things so that they could enjoy learning and understanding things. Then I said, that's what I need to do. And then seeing that that was really my, my gifting and that I was skilled in it and I loved doing it. All of those things kind of came together and, and I just know that I was made to be a teacher and thankful I took that. I mean, yeah, if I be after I would be making the big money, but maybe i don't know nowadays but um <laughs> there is there's no regret in my life to ever being a teacher and there's no regret in my life to ever being now a special education teacher and there's never been a regret in my life to have the amazing family that i have so 
I'm, I'm very blessed and very thankful. And it's not because of what I've had or what I haven't had. It's learning to appreciate what I have, to be thankful for what I have. If I could just say thank you so much, Dr. David Palmer, for being a guest on our show today. If you've liked this episode, please check him and his wife's work out on Instagram and Facebook at Inclusion Matters Ed or their website at www.inclusionmattersed.com. And Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us on this episode, talking about inclusion and neurodiversity and being a neurodivergent individual and being a neurodivergent parent of neurodivergent children. And please just remember that when you're embracing neurodiversity affirming practices, it's not just about what this podcast says or you know, just parenting children or being a teacher to neurodivergent students or neurotypical students, you want to really focus on helping an individual blossom into their own authentic self. And also remember that every individual is unique. The strategies that you've heard today may work best for one person, and it may differ from one person to another. So please be willing to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about an individual's needs and strengths because becoming a neuroaffirming individual is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and leave us a review if you have time. But until next time, please keep nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. Be sure to listen out because we have new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. This is your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, signing off.